this was my nightmare about ever having employees to begin with was the fact that everybody's livelihood rests on me not running the ship into the ground. And I'm like effectively running the ship into the ground. After taking an investment from Stripe, Josh Pigford realized he was running out of money in a matter of weeks and not months. What followed for Bear Metrics was a period of salary cuts, general cost cutting, and a slow march back towards break even, stability, and ultimately profitability. As a founder, Josh earned enough goodwill with his team that they didn't end up leaving the business, but instead stuck with him and helped him move the company forward towards a profitable exit. In this episode of It's Not Over, Josh and I discuss raising money when you aren't really trying to, building a fully transparent software business, using content marketing to generate more income, and how Josh managed to convince his investors to take a hit on their investment when they finally sold the business. I don't want to keep you waiting any longer, so remember, it's not over until it's over. Welcome back to It's Not Over. I am your host, Nick Harrell-Ambus, as you should know by now. I'm sitting with Josh Pigford today, who I've been following for a long time, and I was lucky enough to meet a few months ago in a conference in Italy. Josh, welcome, and thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm doing good, Nick. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you having me on. I'm excited to talk about your near-death business experience, and then also at the end of the show, talk about your current startup, which I would love to hear about too, and you will be able to punt and tell our listeners about at the end. But for now, why don't you tell people broadly who you are, what you're doing, what you've done, and what business we're going to be talking about. Sure. So Josh Pigford, currently the co-founder and CEO of Maybe, which is a personal finance and wealth management company. We'll, I, historically, I just make stuff. I've been making stuff for the web for 20 years, and I've got too many projects and businesses to name. However, today we'll be talking about Bear Metrics, which was my previous company to, to maybe that came real close to imploding a few years back. So that's what we'll be talking about today. Which is actually how I became familiar with you. The transparency uh, of that business was really uh, appealing to me. I th from what I remember, you guys were as transparent as a company could be with a whole bunch of things. And that really caught my attention. You were one of the first founders to be very open and transparent about things like money and salaries and progression and whatever. So that's kind of how I got to know you. So tell the listeners who aren't aware of what Bear Metrics was. Is it still running? It, it, it still, still is. is. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so what it is, tell them what it is, how you made money, and when it was founded. Give us some context sure. on all of that. Yeah, so back in 2013, I was building a bunch of stuff, but a couple of SaaS companies. And at the time, there wasn't anything, so, so base level, Barometrics Bear, Bear is like SaaS analytics platform. So back in 2013, that stuff just didn't exist. Like if you wanted to know what your lifetime value was, churn, MRR, ARR, every like three letter acronym, you had to either, most people were doing this in a spreadsheet manually, or you were building like tiny little internal tools that would give you some high level stuff. So the timing of this was Stripe had been around for, I don't know, maybe a year or two at that point, but like late 2013 was just starting to kind of really gain some momentum. Like it was, people weren't just like using it, they were switching to it from authorized.net, Braintree, all these others that kind of had predated them. And... I they their API was great from a development perspective and what sort of crossed my mind was you could click a button connect your Stripe account and then like all of a sudden get all this stuff and you had you didn't have to do anything so this like concept did not exist at the time and uh, and for context here like Stripe was like ninety people at the time they're like seven thousand now so they were they were a small company as far as 
startups go, or at least Silicon Valley startups. So 2013, and I'm giving this context here because it ultimately plays into us almost dying. 2013, I started it. Stripe became interested in it from like, hey, cool, somebody's building something pretty substantial on top of our API here. Like nobody else had really built anything like that at the time. They decided in 2014 to make a, an offer or to, to, they offered to put money into the company as an investment. And I've, I'm diving like straight into this story of how he almost died. I don't know like <laughs> if you want me to keep going here, but. Before you do that, I think what's okay. interesting to me, there's a couple of acronyms I want to unpack just yeah. briefly. The first is SaaS, software as a service. For those of you not in the tech world, that means that Josh built software that companies will pay him on a monthly recurring basis to use every single month. Then the second one that I wanted to add to that is API, uh, Application Protocol Interface. You were given access to data information and stuff by Stripe's API that you can then use to build other products and services with that data or information. Is that correct? That's spot on, yeah. Okay, amazing. So how did Metrics make money? So very typical in the you know, SaaS world is a subscription fee. So you'd pay a monthly fee anywhere from, I don't know, it varied over the years, but I mean, as little as maybe like 19 bucks a month up to thousands of dollars a month, depending on the size of your company. Okay, and your initial target audience was individuals with e-commerce stores or big corporates, B2B, what was the vibe? It was sort of like classic, like SaaS companies serving other SaaS companies. So like, okay, you know, and, and like we're exclusively focused on subscription companies. So like, you had to have, you know, be another company that was charging a subscription for, it was typically other software. Like you think of subscription box services, like, you know, you get, you get a, some sort of gift box or whatever with stuff in it every month. That's still a subscription mm -hmm. like that stuff. Or like Sling TV was like a, a, a customer for a while. Like, you know, that's just like, that's TV service, but like anything on a subscription mm -hmm. that used Stripe at the time. Okay, and the interesting thing for me is that this predates like Shopify and WooCommerce and BigCommerce giving you that data. Like I, I recall back then being on WordPress and I don't even think back then WooCommerce was a thing if, I, if I'm honest. Regardless, you were providing something in the market that nobody had and then I imagine you went to market, you gained traction pretty quickly because this is pivotal when you're raising money, these sorts of stats and how quickly after 2013, when you started building, did you see this traction and this evolved into a real business? Within, I'm going to like throw numbers out here in, in, the, in the name of transparency, like Bearmetrics own numbers always have and currently still are available for anyone to see at demo.bearmetrics.com. Okay. So you can literally go check this stuff. <laughs> I mean, like afterwards be like, hey, what? I'm gonna go see back in 2013 how much money they were making. <laughs> so I think if our memory serves me correctly, you know, this is also like, 10 years ago or something. We were like within a couple of months, we were doing, I don't know, three to $5,000 a month in recurring revenue. And when I say we, me, it was me. Like I was doing 100% of all the things. It was just me. And so, you know, within those first couple of months, yeah, it's making a few thousand bucks a month. Cool. And then when did you start hiring? When did you feel comfortable enough to do that? And at the, at the peak, how big was this business? Yeah. So, so about six months in, I was way in over my head. Like I'm, I am an engineer only enough to like break things. I can hack something together. It quickly gets to a point where I'm just like, what am I doing? And, <laughs> and so it's like, I can make my idea become a reality, but like scaling it on any capacity, I'm not interested from a development <laughs> perspective. So about six months in, I, I think we were doing 
maybe $10,000 a month or something. And I'm like, the servers are burning down. Like I'm up at all hours of the night trying to keep this thing from falling apart. And so I hired a engineer and that was, yeah, that was was six months in. I think I made two hires before the summer of 2014 when we got some funding. So you gain traction, you get prop, proper engineers, quote unquote, into the business, you start scaling, you use that money to continue growing. And then I'm happy for us to kind of do some high level numbers about when this near death business experience happened, what was the business looking like? And what year were you in? Yeah, so so summer of 2014, Stripe's like, hey, can we put some money in? Okay, whatever. They like, they said, let's do it. Can we, can we put in $500,000 at a $10 million valuation? I said, I sure, whatever. That sounds great. Like I $10 million valuation for this thing seems bonkers, but whatever. Like you're, it's essentially free money at this point. There wasn't, there weren't any major sort of like growth targets we had to hit or anything like that. This will play in a little bit to our almost dying, but we were, Part of that, the stipulation on that money was us being exclusive to Stripe for a period of time for a number of years, which at the time seemed fine, like Stripe's a rocket ship at that point. Sure, whatever. Like the fact that any of this was happening was still at all icing on the cake. Like I never thought that it was going to be anything, honestly. Like I was building it because I needed the tool back in the end of 2013. So I wasn't giving a lot of this stuff a ton of thought. For this for this fundraising, what kind of chops did you have? Have you raised funding before at this point? Do you know the founders? Are you talking to them directly at Stripe? Because from what I understand, they are deep and vicious in a good way, but they know their sure. shit and like they can easily make this deal work for them. So like how are you going through this right. fundraise? So I had I had not gone out and done proper sort of just pitching at all. My previous companies, like my co-founders had funded it, but like I was not doing, I didn't do really any pitching. And for this 500,000, I didn't have to go pitch anybody. Like, so, so Patrick CEO at Stripe, like he had flown me out a couple of times already up to that point for us just to like talk, what does this look like? I think like they were low level interested in like, well, what if we just hire Josh to like, like, we'll just go ahead and just buy bare metrics get Josh as an engineer and call it a day. Then, you know, they realize like I'm a, I'm a pretty terrible engineer. So like, no, we don't want Josh as an engineer. Um, so I was dealing directly with, with Patrick at Stripe. Like all of my meetings were with him at that point. You know, again, they're like 90 to hundred people. They're still pretty small. He's still got plenty of time on his hands for the most part. So all my meetings with, with them were great at that point. They're, uh, you know, obviously anybody who's ever spent any time like listening to anything that Patrick at Stripe talks about like dude's smart and uh, and well spoken knows what he wants and you know is out to get it. So everything seemed pretty good on my end at that point. Like I all perfectly positive experience, which also made it pretty easy for me to take the five hundred thousand dollars. Like everything was great. And when you say everything seems fine from your perspective, did you have lawyers, co-founders, advisors, anybody helping you with this? I had, yeah, my attorneys were were talking through like, I mean, they can talk through the legal stuff, right? Like, yes, Mm. this contract makes sense or you should, let's push back on this particular clause or whatever it is. I had that, but I didn't have any, no co-founders. And at that point I had like one full-time and one part-time employee. So that was it. Okay. So the money comes in and then you've now got Stripe on your cap table. And what does that do to the business? So at that point, it's like, you know, well, what else do you spend money on when you get a big pile of it? You hire people. Like that's the yeah. 
the idea at least or the expectation. So yeah, I hired an additional, I don't remember the exact number, maybe maybe three people or something. I feel like maybe by the end of 2014, we were at like maybe, I think maybe five or six people full time. And at that point, like it was, you know, we're proper, these are W2 employees, you know, salaries, benefits, the whole thing. So yeah, that was all, and it was all great at the end of 2014. Hey folks, Nick here, and I'm interrupting this fascinating conversation. And I know that that can be irritating, but I wanted to ask you to do me a small favor that will help me in a huge way. Please, right now, stop and go and subscribe to It's Not Over wherever you are listening, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, or YouTube. Then leave a rating and review and turn on notifications. Every subscriber and every rating helps me keep this podcast trucking along. Now, Back to the knowledge bombs. And then what happens? Mm-hmm. So 2015 starts coming around. We get into sort of summer of 2015. I think everything's great. Like on the surface, it sounds it sounds cool. Everything's good. And what I was doing to track finances at this point in time was I had a I I had a not just bookkeeping, bookkeeping stuff, whatever, but like let's track growth and specifically burn rate and how those two interact. Like I could, Bear Metrics is providing the like high level, how much, how is the business doing from a revenue perspective? It doesn't have anything to do with your expenses. And so me tracking It's not an accounting app, right? It's not accounting at all. And so what I was tracking all this stuff in as far as like trying to project growth and like where we would be in the next few months based on burn rates and all this stuff was this little spreadsheet I had like basically downloaded for free and I'm, I'm manually updating and it didn't, it didn't properly take into account all of the little expenses that sort of add up like around either payroll taxes and, you know, a fully loaded employee who's getting paid a hundred thousand actually costs a lot more than a hundred thousand dollars. And this software was not, or this spreadsheet was not properly accounting for that. So I was not properly accounting for how much runway we actually had. So there was someone who was building his like starting up this services company of like, Hey, I will, I will build this spreadsheet explicitly for you. And like, we will we will get it down to the penny on what we're tracking and properly projecting and all this stuff. I'm like, and he's like, can I give you a deal on like, you know, to, to start, I'm helping, I'm trying to start this company. Can I use you as sort of a case study? I'm like, okay, whatever, man. Sure. Yeah. So he, I have a conversation with him, send him all the finances. And then like a couple of days, days later, he's like, Hey man, we weren't supposed to talk again for like a month. He's like, Hey man, can we get on the phone now? And I'm like, oh, sure, <laughs> whatever. Okay. He's like, so we hop on the call and he's like, He's like, I don't, I don't really want to be like an alarmist here, but you're going to run out of money in a few weeks. And, and so I'm like, oh, okay, okay. Oh, okay. I'm glad you gave me a call. Thank you. I'm glad we didn't wait for our month, you know, for you to follow back up. It might not exist. So he tells me, I think, I think it was like six or seven weeks of cash that we were going to run out of after we ran payroll a couple more times. And so things got real, real fast. I had... No, like I knew I was, I'd already thought that probably by the end of 2015, we were going to need to try to raise a little bit more money. That was, that's still six months away. I'm thinking we've got almost more to the end of the year. Like we've got six months, not six weeks, six weeks. And and so, so like that, like things, things got, got dark pretty quick. So, you know, it's like, well, what first it's like, well, how do we fix this without firing everyone? And 
Or is that possible? Is there some way we can make a bunch of money real fast? Like, what are we doing? Like, how do we, how do we keep the ship from sinking? The very typical tech startup resolution in your head. I've been there with my co-founder. How we got four weeks of runway. Okay, let's do some dev work. How can we get some agency clients? How do we make $10,000 quick, quick so we can settle some shit? Yeah, so we had, you know, I I spent some time with the, the basically accounting guy trying to figure out what our options are so that I can talk. I, I knew like I needed to talk to the team real quick, right? Like, um, cause the last thing I wanted was like, if I have to lay everybody off, like they need to know that it's yeah. coming real quick. And so we, we scenario planned all sorts of stuff. Like here are these different options. Here's how this changed the chart and the projections and all this stuff. And so, so where we landed on how to fix this is I had to ask everybody on the team to take a 15% pay cut. I took a 30% pay cut. And uh, keep in mind, we are not paying like huge Silicon Valley salaries. Like I'm, I was probably already on the low end of what everybody was getting paid. So this was, this was not like somebody went from making, like they were making $200,000 or something as an engineer, not anywhere mm. close. So they were making half that, if that. So, so we did that plus very quickly was able to get so the way that Stripe did their investment in us was they used General Catalyst, big VC firm, as sort of like the, the vehicle for sort of dispersing this or managing okay. it. So I had, a, I had a phone call with Patrick at Stripe. He made a quick phone call to General Catalyst. General Catalyst added another couple hundred thousand dollars. And I was able to, Bessemer, another big VC firm, by a random thing, ended up putting a hundred thousand in as well. At a down round um, or no, are you still seeing traction? Ex- it was essentially a bridge. They added on oh. to the exact same safe from like a year, year, year and a half prior, which was very generous of everyone. It's amazing. I mean, and especially They obviously for, could have taken as, advantage of us and they didn't. Absolutely. And I mean, Bessemer, as big and institutionalized as they are, that's incredible. I mean, they're over 100 years old from what I know of them. And they've got many billions under management. So for them to do that at such a low ticket is actually incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Honestly, I mean, like the hmm. you know, but that's like a connections thing, right? Like mm. the CEO of Stripe says, "Hey, will you do this?" And they're like, "Sure." So, <laughs> you know, so that so that like quickly getting in additional influx of cash, plus a whole team taking a pay cut, and then us like really pretty drastically cutting costs, like going through every line item and being like, "Do we need this? Do we actually need this service that's fifty bucks a month?" No, kill it. Like we did that. We spent a lot of time doing that. So we, we cut expenses by quite a bit. Everybody takes, you know, our biggest ticket item is, is payroll by far. But that, yeah, that ultimately, the goal was to get us to profitability. Like we were making money for sure, mm-hmm. but we weren't, we were not mm-hmm. profitable, obviously. So the goal is to like get to profitability as fast as possible. I had played around a little bit more with like, well, let me try to raise some more later in 2015. And it just, nothing didn't pan out. Like I didn't didn't raise any more money past that. And then I think it took us about six months, but like we got to break even and then everybody got, so what the goal was like, get to break even on the reduced salaries and then raise everybody's salaries as we were able to. So, and I gave everybody like, they got additional, you know, I hate the idea of like giving people equity in lieu of salary, but like Mm. that, the, the fact was, it was like, these are our options. Like, you can keep your job, like, here if you want. You know, I will not, obviously, don't fault you if you want to go find a job somewhere else, given the circumstances. But I will, you know, we'll take a pay cut, but I will, you'll get equity in exchange for that. 
So that's what we did. A couple of things to unpack here. So had you ever done the sort of cost-cutting exercise that you went through before? Was this the first no. time? No, that was the first time because it felt like, you know, when you've got hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank, it feels like you've got infinite dollars in the bank. And so you just don't think about it, really. Especially when you're like, oh, 20 bucks here, 50 bucks there, whatever. And in reality, like, compared that to, you know, $85,000 in payroll every month, like, it is kind of nothing, but it adds up, especially when you're like really about to run out of money. Yeah, 100%. And so on that front, have you ever had this kind of conversation with your team before? Not this team, but any team. And if if not, I'm interested in that very first conversation you had with these four or five people. You realize you got six weeks of funding. And then as you've noted, you want to give them the best opportunity to prepare. So you pull them all together in a boardroom and say what? So we are, so at this point, I think we're like eight, maybe I've been eight or nine people. We're all, whole team's remote. I mean, we've been, we're a remote company from day one. Though we had had, we've met up a couple of times for like team retreat kind of stuff. But I remember I, when I realized we did, we do a stand up every Monday or we did a stand up every Monday morning with the whole team. They know nothing. They have zero clue what's coming. I think it's a normal weekly stand up. And, and I just remember, like I had put together a very, a small present, not presentation, some slides to illustrate what our options were. Like I was, I wanted to show them that I could, I had, I've spent the last like week here every hour putting some, like trying to figure out what our options are. And I, and I mm. wanted them to like realize, like I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and here are the options. So, you know, everybody's like hopping on zoom and like everybody's popping up and chatting and stuff. I leave my camera off because I'm like, feel like I'm about to throw up. And, uh, <laughs> and so they're really like, okay, we got to just like rip the bandaid off. And uh, so I turn my camera on and I'm like, hey guys, like I got bad news. Like here's, here's, let's talk through some stuff, but like, here's the deal. Like we're about to run out of money. And then I explained a little bit like what I explained here about like talking to the, the accounting guy and figuring out realizing we have much shorter runway than I realized. It's like six, seven, maybe eight weeks at best. But I tried to not beat around the bush for very long. Like basically those like, here's the deal. And here are the possible solutions. Here is the one that I believe is the best for everyone. So, you know, and this is, I think everybody's response to that was about as gracious as like, I think it could be. Mm. No one was, nobody on the call got angry or anything. I, you know, I had at most a few people were like, hey, can I take the rest of the day off to like let this sink in? Yeah, yeah, obviously, of course you can. You know, and I, I spent the rest of the next couple of days having conversations with each person on the team, like mm. answering all their questions, understanding that like, you know, I had a, a family, other people on my team had families. Like these are not just like single people with no expenses or something. Like, yeah, I, and this was like, this was my nightmare about ever having employees to begin with was the fact that everybody's livelihood rests on me not running the ship into the ground. And I'm like effectively running the ship into the ground. And so, yeah, talk through all that stuff. Everybody is on board with the 15% pay cut. You know, a few people have to figure out like, is it okay if I take on a couple of consulting clients or whatever to try to like fill in the gaps? Yeah, yeah, obviously yeah. that's fine. So and that was that. And how do you approach this without the fallout being everybody leaves? Because that's actually also a worst case scenario too, is sure. you do pitch this to people and they go, 
screw this, we're out. Done. We're going to go find proper Silicon Valley jobs. How do you as the founder steady the ship enough that they stay? I think the the fact that we were, had always been so transparent, I don't think anybody ever got the feeling that I was hiding something from them. Mm. Um, obviously, I misstep on my part, you know, understatement there, but like a misstep on my part of not fully accounting for burn rates and doing this sort of real financial businessy stuff correctly. Like I messed up there, but there was never any point where I was actively hiding anything from anybody or trying to downplay it was, anything. It wasn't malicious at all. Right. And so I, th I think everyone believed that I was trying to do right by them. And because mm. of that, and because again, I, I had laid out, I mean, had charts and everything of showing if we do this, here's what the thing looks like. And here's roughly speaking, ideally when you can, we can start raising your salary back up. And in exchange for that, there's some additional equity involved. Like I, it was like, here, here's the best I can do. I hope I would love for you to stick around because I, you know, I will make this right, but it may take a little time. And I got to say, I'd like time. the approach that you took there. The sensible thing that I think most people ignore and forget to do is putting a, a deadline on when this will turn around. Like yeah. I think people can deal with basically anything when they have a deadline. Like it's gonna be four months of really shitty salary, but it'll only be four months if all goes yep. according to plan. Then even right. if it's five months, it's okay. But if it's, oh, we don't know when this is gonna turn around, you gotta take a salary cut basically forever. Then right. then it's over, it's out. What's so the point? I yeah. love, that's like really good advice is, have a plan, present it to your team, and then they will probably get behind you if you've not been an asshole for the last six months. That's right. That's right. I, you know, I had spent the prior couple of years building up a lot of goodwill. And Key. Yeah, and I, th I think that paid off ultimately. I mean, as far as paid off in the sense that everybody didn't just quit. <laughs> yeah, and I think that is a payoff. Like in a huge sure. way, because more, I mean, we all know that VCs will tell you that they're back the jockey, not the horse. And I actually think it's very much the same for employees a lot of the time. They're backing yeah. the founder at an early stage startup until they see that there's some traction. They're backing you to do right by them. So if you show them that, they're probably going to stick around. Right. And I think that, you know, I don't, I'm not going to say there's this sort of like everybody believed in the mission or anything like that. Like, I don't know. That, I don't think it was anything like that, but I do think the team like our dynamic, the culture between the whatever, six, seven, eight of us at the time um, was such that everybody felt like, well, I don't want to just like throw this out and go try to do the whole thing of where I'm trying to find another job and mm. get reacclimated and all that. Like when, again, there is an end in sight and we're doing, I think, I think I also committed to doing weekly updates. You know, we That's would talk awesome. about finances on a monthly basis already, mm. period, but like in show graphs and whatnot, but like saying, well, now we'll do weekly updates. And so you can see the progress we're making towards you all getting back to salary, full salaries. Something you said there that's quite a throwaway comment, but something that's super important that has taken me a lot of companies and a lot of employees to figure out is once people have got a good job with a decent leader, they don't want to leave. They would yep. rather stay because it's easier to stay and fix what they have than to go and find a good culture, a good company, good pay, and a good boss. And you and I both know that people don't leave businesses, they leave bosses. So if you are a good boss, the chances are people want to fix what you've got. So I think that's an important thing that you have established is that most of your team are like, let's fix this. Let's do what we can right. do, even if, it, if it's only 15%. Cool. That makes sense. Yes. Yeah. What I want to touch on is what you were doing day to day. So your accountant dude goes, Josh, you're in trouble. 
What does yeah. Josh do for work? Like day to day, now that you've told your team, what are you doing every day when you wake up? Um, to try to fix the situation? Yeah, I mean, to do whatever, right? Because there's a lot of leaders in that position who would be busy and try and act busy. And then the leaders who will solve the fucking problem. So sure. like, what, what were you I doing? Do? Yeah. So at that point, a lot of our, the short, short answer there is I probably dove deep on marketing. Now, okay. a lot of our, an attempt to like, obviously you can cut costs, but ideally you're making more money. Like that's the real solution here. And at the time I was doing a mix of like attempting this other additional fundraising, like maybe we can add another few hundred thousand dollars on top of this, but I wasn't doing that, wasn't spending all my time on that. But our, our big marketing lever at the time was content and, and you know, we were, weekly putting out an article from me like that was a big chunk of my time so i just like mm -hmm. dove deep on like well I'm, I'm, let's keep marketing even more and writing more about this and, let's acquire um, new customers let's get more customers and so that was that was the bulk of my time i i still want to stick a little bit with the culture thing so you tell your team they take the salary cuts how do you maintain the upbeat nature of what startups are, especially in a remote team that are isolated. And this is pre us knowing how to really be remote well. Yeah. Like, how do you keep them motivated? I think we were from a product, every, everybody on the team was very product minded to begin with. And so we were doing, we, we had so much, we had, been, I, I had negotiate, renegotiated our Stripe contract to no longer need to be exclusive. So, there was a lot of work around expanding into essentially new markets of, for customers. And so there was, a, a, there was a good bit of excitement around what we were building from a product perspective. So from, from that angle, everybody was still really excited about what we, were, what we were building. And I think that was one of the big reasons people stuck around was like, hey, we're still like, we have not really scratched the surface of what we're wanting to do, it, period. So... Let's keep building all this stuff. And people are still excited about it, I think. And you, you come across having met you in person and spent some time with you as someone who really does give a shit about other people. Mm -hmm. And so this is quite a blow as the leader of a team who's got talented people and didn't see this coming. A lot of it's weighing on your shoulders because it kind of is your mistake. So how are you coping? Like mentally, mental health, your family, your separation from work, what's going on? Yeah. So I think me personally... I, at the time, so this is, you know, 2015, my wife and I have been married 10 years at that point. I've been self-employed pretty much that whole time. As, as a family unit, we're comfortable with variable salary. Like this is, especially because a big portion of that I've been doing consulting essentially. And a lot of that had a, some ups and downs, especially early on. And so we, the two of us, relatively comfortable with saying, okay, well, our salary is going down a decent amount. Or, you know, it's getting cut by a third. Are already not super high salary. Um, Is your wife working in Bay Matrix with you at this point? No, she at this point in time. I think she was actually she was stay at home mom, like homeschooling our okay. youngest kid. So, okay. so I was yeah, sole income there. And, but again, like we were comfortable on that. So the thing that's weighing on me is not me hoping that my family will be able to eat. It's like me worrying about the rest of the team being able to feed their families and yeah. not get too stressed out about anything. So, so I was stressed, just sort of base level stress, like not sleeping well, just wake up in the middle of the night thinking about this stuff, trying to think of like, what else can we do to like fix this faster? But I'm also, I didn't feel helpless. Like if, if I can, if I feel like I can be doing something, then I don't really, it doesn't, I don't feel too worried about whatever it is that's like 
wrong because I feel like I'm mm. taking action on it. And I, you know, so at that point I am doing every day, I'm like trying to raise some money or doing marketing stuff. And so I feel like I'm like doing as much as I possibly can. And so like that removes a big level of stress for me. I think one of the key things that I can observe is that you didn't have a broken business. Your business was still working. The model sure. was working. There was traction. You just had some administration issues that were easily resolved when you knew they existed. That's right. That's right. Yes. Yeah. That, that to me, takes a huge thing off your shoulders. So It's, it's not like we're that. not making money and all of a sudden we exactly. have to go figure out how to make money. <laughs> right? Yeah. Exactly. And the key observation that you made on that front is there really are two ways to fix this problem. You cut costs or you grow sales. And you can do both, but the one doesn't mean a sustainable business. You can't cut costs to a sustainable business. It doesn't work that way. You have to grow yep. your client base. And I think like the balance of those things makes complete sense. But you said something that in the beginning that then you mentioned in the middle that I think matters. You got the money from Stripe. They very smartly negotiated exclusivity to lock you into their platform and their API, which held you in good stead until you needed to go and get up more clients. So you then went back to Patrick and was like, jokesies, I actually need this clause removed. And he just went, yep. cool. <laughs> like, was that it? Was that easy? Yes. So this is to their to their to their credit. I think it was one of those things where when we when we did the deal at the beginning, it was sort of like an obvious ask from them. Like, sure, we're giving you money. Like, and then they wanted like write a first refusal on an acquisition. You know, in the sense that like say PayPal came and was like, hey, we want to buy you. Then Stripe wants to write a first refusal on that kind of deal. Just to explain that, that means that the deal needs to be offered to Stripe first at the same terms, and then they can choose to accept it. And if they don't accept it, then you can go to PayPal. That's right. That's right. Cool. Very, yeah. Pretty pretty straightforward. So, yeah, I there were a number of conversations that I had with them, just explaining like, look, we're running out of money, and. The first solution there was, well, let's get General Catalyst to throw some more money into this, which they did. But then on top of that, it was like, look, guys, there's, we are currently being limited on growth by this exclusivity part, which ultimately hurts the business, which ultimately hurts your investment here. Like if we, if we die, the investment's gone, you know, yeah. which we can get, actually get into returns on that investment here mm. in a bit. Mm. Um, so the, so I, you know, yes, there were multiple conversations, them trying to figure out, well, what if we did this, that, and the other? I think I flew out to San Francisco another time to meet with them about potential acquisition stuff. And all said and done, it was just like, okay, yes, you can be released from the exclusivity. So that's what, Amazing. That's what, what it was. Yeah, um, There was no trade-off there. They didn't like demand something else in return or anything. That's incredible. I mean, in fairness, it was a pretty glorious time to be a SaaS company, to be raising money. Like there's just this incredible flow of talent and money in that space. So there's yeah. no really reason for them to be demonic and demand crazy stuff of you, which is great yeah. to see. But I want to stick with the VC thing for a bit. Um, I'm really shocked that nobody noticed that there was this problem, especially from a VC reporting structure. Like, weren't you having monthly meetings with them talking about finances or anything? Like, they didn't demand no. any of that. No, that's the thing. That's, that's what's so weird about this. That's man. wild. Like, I never, I, they never asked for anything, period. Like, that's they were wild. available. I know, no, I know. Like the they at most they were like, hey, if you ever need it, like shoot us an email, and we're happy to like hop on a call and like talk through product stuff or whatever. But at no point were they asking for monthly updates or anything. 
And after that, now that you've got Bessemer in, I mean, those Bessemer is a heavy hitter. Surely they've sure. got LPs that they have to report to. And did things change? Yeah, no. I mean, I, I again had way more talks with them. Bessemer was much more interested from a product perspective than I think a financial perspective. Like, okay, we would have regular phone calls on product stuff, but they still weren't like asking for reports and stuff. I mean, I suppose a hundred thousand dollars to them is really just a it's pass. a sneeze. It's nothing, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 Okay. And then a little bit more of a philosophical question. And what I'm trying to extract from this question is what other builders can learn from this tryst that you formed with Stripe. Why do you think that they reached out to you? Like of all the people in all the world building all on their API, why Josh at Bear Metrics? Sure. So at the time, 2013, there weren't that many people building anything on Stripe's API. It was the Stripe selling point was it's easy to integrate payments. One line of code. Like that's it. So you can start accepting payments. So like from a development perspective, that's what everybody's thinking of is like, oh, I don't have to spend months with like authorized.net signing papers and faxing stuff to like get going. <laughs> it's it's one line of code, right? So like yeah. that that's that was the angle everybody's looking at Stripe from. And I looked at it from I need data. Like that's and so that's how I viewed Stripe. Other than obviously, you know, I was using them as the payment processor, but like past that, it was just this is a data source. How do I get the data? Oh, they happen to have this API that's very easy to use. And so that was the perspective I took from it. And they were excited to see someone build this massive thing on just their API. Okay, so. that's really interesting. So sticking with the Stripe and the investment thing, you mentioned that there was some kind of ROI and the investment return on investment that you wanted yeah. to unpack. Let's let's do that. So you you get the ship righted, you come break even, you start paying your staff reasonable salaries. They've now obviously got this equity in lieu of their salary that you start distributing, your cap table becomes more complex. Then what happens? Yeah, so at that point, we decided we're not raising any more money. We're just, we're just gonna grow th- the business, like from a revenue perspective. And we'll, we will operate within our means that, I mean, you know, at that point we went after everybody got back up to full salaries and then like pay increases as well. We were basically purposefully operating at break even from that point out, like not trying to have a bunch of profit, just trying to operate a break even. So, and reinvesting the profit into what? Yeah. Hires? Yes. Listen, just like okay. growing the team. And so did that. For so that was everybody gets back up to full salaries, and you know, we have we get r- annual raises built in to everything. But this is like 2016 17 ish. So then for the next few years, like that's what we're we're focused on. We're just like trucking along. I had had a conversation with both General Catalyst and Bessemer at that point that, like, hey guys, just this is what we're doing now. Like, we're not going to rocket ship this thing. And I, they didn't need me to tell them that. Like, that was obvious at that point mm-hmm. that we're, you know, we're four plus four or five years into this thing. And like, man, the, the chart is as stable as it's going to. It's just, it's steady. But like, there is no inflection point here. It is. There's no J curve. There is no 10x their investment just, in five years. It, yeah. We picked an angle on the chart and it kept that trajectory 
forever. And, uh, which, is which is absolutely amazing. incredible. Yeah. Yes, it's so great. But not for VCs. Um, not for VCs. They don't, they don't want the, the, the steady. They don't give a shit they about want... stable. Yeah. No. So yeah. what, you, know, you look at the chart and it's like, okay, this is not going to be the thing that like returns our fund for us. Mm. <laughs> so, mm. so like at that point, the, again, they weren't asking for a bunch of stuff or anything because it became obvious like, okay, we're not, this is not going to be a thing that we get yeah. returns on. So, 20, 2020 comes along, you know, we're, we're in the middle of COVID. I am burnt out on just from every angle possible. At this point, the team is 12 people. I think we'd had a failed acquisition in 2019. And my response to the failed acquisition was, okay, well then let's go, let's dig deeper and like really make a go at this even more. So, mm-hmm. so I hired a couple more people, but then like summer 2020, bunch of family stuff going on and like i'm i'm just like man i can't i'm tired of this you know i've spent the better part of seven years eight years focused thinking about bare metrics every single day for however many thousands of days that is mm. and so i was ready to move on and so started the acquisition process again and to and the reason i want to talk about like vcs here is like i think it's important to it's very easy to like sit there and like rail on VCs like that's a, it's it's a easy thing to do a lot of them make it easy to do but when it came time for the acquisition and you know people have their equity from this from both early on we would give out equity but then also from this pay cut time period and stuff when it all came down to it general catalyst and bessemer agreed to walk on their investment and didn't want didn't ask for a penny back that um, is i mean when you told me that when we were sitting in person i yeah. my jaw hit the floor like yeah. i i've dealt with bessemer and many others at their level they were gracious when i dealt with them and declined my investment as they should have <laughs> but it's it's just astonishing to hear that i mean my vcs in the past have done the opposite and clawed back their options first and left me with nothing out of a sale so it's astounding that they basically said you're good you you pay your team out like we, we're okay that's right Yep. So it meant that the, well, really what it meant was that the deal was able to get done. Like, because the, the, what we sold for, so we sold for 4 million and like, that's not, it was like 2.65 X or something like that. Like not a big return at all. The, that came with a bunch of stuff. Like I got to walk, like I don't, I didn't have to stick around for a single day after closing and like, and it meant that the team could get paid out as well. So, you know, and they knew that and they were willing to do that and and they also kept their jobs but... as part of that. That's right. Yeah. Every, it was it was a good spot for the team ultimately. Yeah. And so that the the outcome of that it's like they took a risk early on, you know, put more money in when they didn't have to and then ultimately offered to not get paid back. So like the entire process over the course of near 5 years from investing like they were they were amazing at every point. So I mean I only have a couple more questions for you, but the one that jumps to my mind, and you can only hypothesize on this, I think, but why? Why would they have done that? Mm. Yeah, so I, I actually think this has a lot to do with the, how transparent Barometrics was from day one. So we talked extensively, publicly and extensively talked about you know finances, the ups and downs of running a company, building a startup. Like We had very deep access and like mind share with other founders. And, you know, we had talked, I mean, even the, the safes themselves were public, like posted on the website, hmm. all the legal documents, that. like, yeah. yeah. And so it is, 
they bought themselves a massive amount of in the founder space when by because they knew that this would be talked about publicly and like yeah they're the VCs are big boys and girls like they can make no one they were in no way forced to like do anything they they were certainly within their rights to be like yeah you gotta pay us back okay like no doubt but they also know that's a it's a real good PR play to to have this guy who's got access to however many thousands of other founders say yeah. like they did right but like well they went yeah. they went far past what was asked of them and and did real real good by us and the team and so yeah there's I no think, altruism in vc <laughs> right so okay a couple yeah. of things the first is before we close off how did you upskill yourself after this faux pas with the accounting like what did you do immediately to like look in and be like i gotta be better at and, this and not do that again yeah we we had this guy who was made this like spreadsheet for us or whatever was added to i mean he's a contractor but like he's on a retainer permanently for the rest of the, like literally until i sold the company because like it was it essentially was like an outsourced cfo at that mm. point like I, we just we did not need to hire like a like salaried CFO for our size company. We were having monthly meetings from then on out. I talked to that guy at least monthly and he, you know, he's making sure that we are nowhere near running out of money from that point on. So, and you didn't take it upon yourself to figure that shit out yourself. Like you just stuck to the idea that that's not what your no. core competencies are. Right. There was no benefit to me trying to become really good at the deep financial stuff on, uh, from that perspective. I mean, it, I'm a product guy, like at my core and, I think it would have been poor use of my time to try to become the money guy. Finance guy. Uh, yeah. A finance guy, right? <laughs> and and it was like from a numbers perspective, it wasn't that expensive to like contract yeah. this thing out. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Final question before you tell us about maybe is what have you learned from this experience that you take with you into all your other startups? I think that it's it's crucial just to know you need to know the numbers ultimately. Like you're, it's very easy to sort of assume that, you know, product or engineering or whatever solves all your problems from a growth perspective. It's, it doesn't, but it's real easy to think that that's the solution is we just need to build more. And on some level, I think that can be true, but the reality is you've got to have the full picture and it's just, you just have to know those numbers. Like it's crucial yep. to have that stuff. I think from day one. Like it or not, as a founder, you got to know 100%. Okay, so now the floor is yours. Tell us a little bit about where people can find you, follow you, and a little bit about maybe and what you're building over there. After I sold Bear Metrics, I had planned on retiring. I didn't have to build anything ever again. I didn't think that I would not, but it just there was no reason for me to go get a job or anything. But my retirement lasted four months, and then I <laughs> like got the itch to build something else. So, so yeah, so about like April-ish, March, April of last year, 2021, I started maybe which is at maybe.co. So this is personal finance, wealth management software. It's kind of thing like instead of getting a financial advisor, you can do all the stuff yourself and, and we provide all the tooling and advice around that automatically for you. Amazing. And so, are you building so that in the same way as Bay Matrix? Transparent, open, the whole deal? Yeah. Yep. Yep. So incredible. It's wide open. So that's, that's what I'm up to now, doing founder CEO stuff. We're a team of eight at this point. I've raised, raised some money, raising a little bit more now. We should be ideally profitable in the next probably 12 months or so. But yeah. So, but you get in touch with me, josh at joshpigford.com on Twitter at spigford, which is annoying and impossible for you to know how to spell that, <laughs> which is fine. I'll link it in the show notes. Yeah. So that's that. 
Amazing, Josh, thank you for your time. And I'm so happy to know that for you as a founder and your startup journey, it's not over. Thanks for having me, Nick. Awesome.